back into Ezekiel, Ezekiel 20. This is part two. It was going to be two parts, but now it's going to be three. So it's the history of Israel's rebellions and God's great mercy. And we'll get up to verse 32 today. So let's do a memory verse. So Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Again, it's not on our own strength. It's by God living his life through us, giving us a new heart with new desires and want to serve him. So just going through a little bit from last week, so you get the context, and for those who weren't here, they can follow along. So chapter 20 starts with the introduction. The elders come, the leaders of the nation of Israel come to Ezekiel in Babylon to inquire of God. And God says, no, I'm not going to be inquired of you. And he says, why? He says, ever since you've been a nation, you've been rebelling against me. Even in Egypt, when there were slaves, in Egypt, and then they continued to rebel as God led them in the wilderness, even though he demonstrated such loving care, and then they continued to rebel in the promised land, and we're going to find out about that today. That's verses 18 to 32, and next week we'll cover the rest. So, last week we learned that the elders of the nation of Israel came to Ezekiel to inquire of God, and he said, no, I'm not going to answer you because you have been persistently unfaithful, and then he went through their sins, their rebellion in the land of Egypt, in the wilderness, and especially after they had seen all that God had done for them, like the ten plagues. You imagine seeing the ten plagues and God's mighty deliverance of the people out of the land of Egypt and still rebelling and still wanting to worship those gods were so soundly defeated by the real God. It doesn't really make sense, but that's what we do too, isn't it? So when they refused to cleanse themselves from the idols of Egypt. And what do they represent? Things of the world, right? Egypt is a picture or type of the world. It caused God to become very angry with them. God does not like sin. He hates sin. And he was angry enough to destroy them. But why didn't God destroy them? Was it because they didn't deserve to be destroyed? No, they did, didn't they? But it was for his name's sake. God had publicly made a promise to bring his people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, and so he was obliged to do so. Why? He had promised it, and God can't lie. He must keep his promises. That's his nature. He is a faithful God. And then they're in the wilderness, and again, they rebelled against God. And they angered, again, God so much by their persistent unfaithfulness that God wanted to destroy them. They deserved to be destroyed. But again, God didn't. Why? Because God had made a promise to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. And so again, for his name's sake, he didn't destroy them in the wilderness, so he kept his promise. Remember that promise was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a long time ago, a thousand years prior to this. So, what we saw last week in the wilderness was a terrible consequence of being a hard-hearted, compromising Christian. The entire first generation of Israelites who were freed from bondage in Egypt, they never got to enjoy the benefits and privileges of living in the promised land. Remember, the promised land is the land of milk and honey, the land that God had gone ahead to search out for. And this is the best place. God gives us the best. But sometimes we just choose not to enjoy it. We want to do our own thing, go our own way. and so. Their rebellion cost them the privilege and benefit of going into the promised land. And what did they do instead? They walked around a barren desert for another 38 years, for a total of 40 years, until all except two of the males, you remember who they were? Joshua and Caleb. They're the only ones who were walking by faith and said, yeah, we can do this, we can beat these enemies, we can conquer their sin, you know. Everybody else, they took part in a massive funeral procession 
for the next 38 years where all the males, 20 years old and above, died before they went in. So we talked last week about there being a legitimate wilderness experience where God teaches us his word and we learn that he loves us and is faithful to his promise to never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13.5. So in effect, the wilderness experience is where we learn to trust God and depend upon him. However, if we choose to love sin more and not leave worldly things behind, then we will never grow and mature and we will remain as learner or baby Christians. We'll never be able to effectively be used by God. Because, why? Like the first generation of the children of Israel, our unbelief causes us to remain dominated by our sinful nature and we will waste our lives chasing sinful or worldly things. So, as a Christian, the compromising Christian is the most miserable person in the whole world. Why? Because we can't enjoy the world because we don't belong to it anymore. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, convicting us. It's no fun being convicted. And then we can't enjoy a relationship with God because we're not fully committed to Him. So we're in this no-man's land, the wilderness. <laughs> Walking around, snakes and scorpions, and you know, not enjoying anything and not achieving anything. So... Let's continue going through Ezekiel. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us understand. Father, would we pray that you will fulfill your promise to, by your Holy Spirit, teach us from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to go through verses 18 through 32. And again, this is a part of the summary of Israel's rebellion against God in the promised land. And in verses 18 through 20, God appeals to the next generation in the wilderness to obey him. So the first generation never got to go in, and God is now talking to the next generation. But I said to their children, that is the next generation in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, that is the first generation who never got to enter the promised land, nor observe their judgments, nor defy yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So, it's too late for the first generation who never got to enter the promised land. The first generation had made their choice. At Kadesh Benia, remember that? When they got there, the ten spies gave a bad report, two spies gave a good report. And of course, the people listened to the ten spies. And even though Moses was encouraging them and saying, God will go before you, God has gone before you, he will go before you, he will give you victory. But they said, nah, we don't trust him. And they refused to enter. They didn't have enough faith to believe that God could overcome the giants, the strong warriors and the fortified cities that were waiting for them in the land. And therefore, God is now telling the next generation of Israelites to learn from the example of their fathers and not be like they were, unbelieving and defiled by the things of the world. In verse 19 it says, I am the Lord your God, walk in my statutes, keep my judgments and do them. So, here's a new opportunity. Most of these people have been born and raised in the wilderness and now God gives them an opportunity to go into the promised land. So the same is true for us today. God gives every person the opportunity to follow and obey him. And the choice for us is, will I choose to love and obey God or love the things of the world instead? Because if I choose as a Christian to love the things of the world instead, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to stay in the wilderness, right? Waste my life. All right, Verses 21 to 24. This is God's mercy towards Israel in the wilderness. Notwithstanding, the children, that is a second generation, rebelled against me. You would have thought it might have gone better, but it didn't. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to observe my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. But they profaned my Sabbath. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness. Remember, God hates sin. 
Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles, in whose sight I had brought them out. Also, I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness, that I would scatter them among the Gentiles, and disperse them throughout the countries, because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. Remember, a few weeks ago we talked about the father having a son, and the son having the choice to follow his father's example or not, good or bad. Here, they followed their father's example in a negative way. So, the second generation was almost as bad as the first, but they had a little more faith. Why? Because we know that they trusted God enough to cross the Jordan River. So they actually had enough faith in God that God was able to defeat the fortified cities, the giants, and the big soldiers over there, the big people. So, what's the point here? Well, one of the points is that we see that our ability to enjoy God's blessings is dependent upon how much faith we have. So, someone gave an example, this is not in your notes, but someone gave an example where if you had a house and you had a mortgage and you couldn't pay it, and you had two days before the bank was going to foreclose, And then someone comes up to you and says, it's okay, I'm going to meet you tomorrow, you know, the very day that the bank's going to foreclose, and I'm going to pay off your mortgage. Now, if you don't believe them, you're going to continue to be sorrowful and bitter and complaining. But if you do believe them, what are you going to start doing? You're going to start rejoicing. You'll invite your friends over. You'll start thinking about how to do up the gardens and how can we make the house look nice because you know that someone's going to pay it off. So the amount of joy you have is a measure of how much faith you have in that person to keep their promise. Does that make sense? So our faith tells us that God is real and how much we believe that is how much we will follow and obey him. And we'll get into that more a bit later. So in verses 21 and 22, we have the same pattern. God is letting them know that he was so angered by their unbelief and sin that he wanted to destroy them, but he didn't because of his name's sake. God had made a promise long ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring them into the promised land, and so he did. Again, God always keeps his promise. Verse 23. I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout the countries. So, consequences for sin. Yes, they did have enough faith to go into the promised land, but what's the consequence of sin once you've entered the promised land? Can you continue in the promised land if you start to rebel? Can you continue to enjoy the blessings of victory by faith in the promised land if you rebel against him? Well, no. God is saying here, if you persist in your sin, you will eventually be kicked out of the promised land. You will be scattered among the nations. They would no longer be able to enjoy the good things that God had searched out for them and wanted to give them. So when we rebel against God, we miss out and we give up those good things that God wants to give us. So here's an application. I've called it the importance of finishing well. So these warnings and predictions of exile and being scattered among the nations are found in Deuteronomy, chapter 4 and chapter 28. And basically, God is warning the people, even before they went into the promised land, that if they didn't continue to trust him, they would lose the privilege of living in the promised land. So the warning to us, the example for us, is that we need to finish well or we will lose our reward also. So, Second John verse 8 says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. So, we need to learn this example of the Israelites. They went in there, they defeated Jericho, they went through all this hard work, they went through years of battles, 
hard slog, defeating all these cities and these armies. Yes, God did the work, but they had to do it with him. Same as us, we work with God, yeah? They did all this work, and they conquered these cities and conquered all these people, and then they rebelled. What happened to all those gains they had made? They lost it all. It was all for nothing in the end. And so us as believers, we can gain a lot. We can achieve a lot through Christ working through us, you know, through our families, through our friends, through our ministry. But then if we fall away, we can lose it all. Not lose our salvation, but we can lose our reward. So I'm going to read one of those passages where God tells them what's going to happen and warns them. It's Deuteronomy 4, 23 to 31. He says this, and this is the example that we have. In the future, when you have children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, do not corrupt yourselves by making idols of any kind. This is evil in the sight of the Lord and will arouse his anger. Today I call on heaven and earth as witnesses against you. If you break my covenant, you will quickly disappear from the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. See that? If you break my covenant, you will quickly disappear from the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You will live there only a short time, then you will be utterly destroyed. For the Lord will scatter you among the nations, where only a few of you will survive. There, in a foreign land, you will worship idols made from wood and stone, gods that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But, this is God's mercy, but from there you will search again for the Lord your God, and if you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. So, if we fall away, is that the end? No, it's not, is it? As a Christian, we can fall away. We can mess everything up that God has done through us. But, what does it say? What's the hope here? But from there you will search again for the Lord your God. And if you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. Verse 30. In the distant future, the latter days or end times, when you are suffering all these things, you will finally return to the Lord your God and listen to what he tells you. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the solemn covenant or promise he made with your ancestors. So, this would have stung the Israeli elders. Remember the context of this? The Israeli elders are sitting with the prophet Ezekiel, saying, give us a message from God. And God says, if you're rebellious, you're going to go into exile. What's happened to them? They're in exile. They're rebellious. Basically, God's message is, you're rebellious. Now, won't go into it too much now, but this Babylonian captivity is only a partial fulfillment of this prophecy and the other one in Deuteronomy 28. The complete fulfillment will happen in AD 70 when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and dispersed the Jews to many different countries, basically all around the world and not just Babylon. So an application here is fulfilled prophecy. We, in our generation, are really privileged to be able to see God bring the nation of Israel back into the land, the promised land, for the second time. So this is not because they deserved it, but simply because God promised. Yeah? Long ago, in this case, for example, I'm going to give you a prophecy from Isaiah 11, verses 11 and 12, and God promises to bring them into the land a second time from many different nations. The modern nation of Israel is proof that God is keeping his promises. Remember we read in Deuteronomy, in the distant future, when you are suffering all these things, you will finally return to the Lord your God and listen to what he tells you. This will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation. This is one of the reasons we know that the tribulation is near, because Israel is back in the land. So we are living in a privileged generation. It's like the generation who lived at the time when Jesus came the first time. You know, They saw him, they heard him, they listened to his teaching. We get to see all these signs come to pass in rapid succession. 
it doesn't take much faith to be a Christian in this day and age, really, if you're prepared to look around and see what's going on. All right, verses 25 and 26, and I've titled this, Sin Becomes Its Own Punishment. Therefore, I also gave them up to statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire that I might make them desolate and that they might know that I am the Lord. So in verse 25 it says, I also gave them up to statutes or laws that were not good. (laughs) What's the worst thing God can give us? Our own way. Yeah, the worst thing that God can do for us is to let us have our own way because the sin we love will eventually kill us. And the case in point here is that the Israelites follow the customs and religion of the nations around them, even to the extent that they murdered their own babies. They're literally killing themselves off. What are we doing today? What is this world system continuing to do? What's, you know... Joe Biden trying to do? Legalize abortion up to birth? What some of the Australian politicians trying to do? The same thing. So the worldly values have not changed. The world system has no or little respect for human life. But what is really sad is that the church today is fast becoming like the world. They're accepting the world's values. Now, God judged Israel for being worldly, having and embracing the world's values and loving the things of the world. So the church is, I believe, going to be judged as well. I don't know how God's going to do it, but he will cleanse his church. He will look after it like he did the nation of Israel. In verse 26, that I might make them desolate and that they might know that I am the Lord. So while the consequences of their sins were a painful consequence in and of themselves, God's judgment would also eventually come, and that would be the exile from the land. He would take them from the land. And in verses 27 and 28, we have examples of Israel's sin in the promised land. It says, Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In this too your fathers have blasphemed me by being unfaithful to me. When I brought them into the land concerning which I had raised my hand in an oath to give them, And they saw all the high hills and all the thick trees. There they offered their sacrifices and provoked me with their offerings. There they also sent up their sweet aroma and poured out their drink offerings. So just have a look at verse 28. They saw all the high hills and all the thick trees. There they offered their sacrifices. So, if someone gives you a gift... Would you be thankful? You know, if someone gave you a car, a nice four-wheel drive with a big bull bar on the front, and they go and start ramming your house with it. It's a bit like what's happening here. They take this beautiful land that God has given them, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, and then they find the nicest spots and turn them into places for idol worship. And so what God gave them to be used to serve him and to be thankful for is basically thrown in his face. Thanks, God. We're going to do our own thing here. We're going to do things that are really going to anger you. We're going to use the gift that you've given us to make you angry. That example of, you know, driving the car that someone gave you into their own house and, you know, I don't think they'd be very happy. And neither was God. But before we are too hard on the children of Israel, we are all actually prone to do the same thing. It's really easy to be ungrateful and take for granted the good things that God has given us. So for me, example, I've just used myself, you know, I've taken for granted and not being thankful for the money God has given me, my job, family, hobbies, time, health, holiday, sport. All those things, I've used them for my own pleasure and benefit at various stages instead of giving thanks for them and using them for God's glory. Moving on to verses 29 to 32. If we persist in sin, then God won't reveal himself to us. 
And so verse 29 says, Then I said to them, What is this high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama, literally high place to this day. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers and committing harlotry according to their abominations? For when you offer your gifts and make your sons... Now, who is he talking to here? The elders of the nation of Israel. For when you offer your gifts to who? Not to God, but to the idols, and make your sons pass through the fire, that is, put them on the burning hot statue of Molech, most likely, and, you know, kill them. You defile yourselves with all your idols, even to this day. So, these elders are inquiring of Ezekiel, even to this very day that they are talking to Ezekiel, are still committing the same sins their fathers did. And God says, So shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. I am not going to talk to you. I'm not going to reveal anything more to you. And verse 32, What you have in your mind shall never be, when you say, We shall be like the Gentiles, like the other nations, like the families in other countries, serving wood and stone. So start in verse 29, What is this high place to which you go? So, what they used to do, the Israelites, is go to the peaks of mountains and hills and, and they used to use them as places for idol worship. And they would offer sacrifices and incense to other gods. And so the term high place became synonymous with any place in the land that was used to worship idols. It didn't have to be literally a high place. And that word that God uses there, that's translated Bama, it just means high place. So basically... Where they're going is Bama, it's a high place. It's a place for idol worship. That's what they do. And verse 29, it's like Nathan talking to David and saying, You're the man. Okay. Are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers? <laughs> well, yes. Ezekiel's getting to the point. He's gone through a history of the idolatry and the rebellion of the nation of Israel over the centuries. You know, in Egypt, in the wilderness, in the promised land. And he asks the question, are you defiling yourselves? Are you sinning in the same way as your fathers did? In other words, aren't you just as guilty as your ancestors? So God sees right through their charade, their outward form of religion. God knows that their hearts are hard. The only message that God is going to give them is a reminder of their sins and that they need to repent if they're going to hear from him again. So before they hear from God, they must repent. We've read that plenty of times in other chapters. So the application here, the word of God reveals our heart. And Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So, for me, when I'm reading the Word, this is the hardest part, you know? Why? The conviction of sin. It's not what I want to hear, but it is what I need to hear. You know, the law is a spotlight that reveals every dark and hidden secret in my heart. And my response should be to repent and get rid of those things. Once God has shown me, of course, doing it through his strength. So in this example, the elders are being rebuked strongly by God. It's a crushing blow to the ego and self-esteem. You know, these religious guys, the leaders of the nation of Israel in Babylon, are being told, you're just a pagan idol worshipper. And what you want is just to be like the other nations. I'm not talking to you. So, the word of God reveals our sins so we can repent of it and come back into relationship with God. Now, what happens if we don't repent? God gives us the opportunity to repent, but we don't take it. 
well, our hearts grow even harder and the consequences grow more dire. They get worse. Hebrews 4.12 warns us, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Now, what happened to the Israelites in exile in Babylon? Well, they did eventually soften their hearts. They did repent of their idol worship. A quote from David Guzik. Yet God used the period of exile, that 70 years, to refine and change Israel. When they emerged from their Babylonian exile, they no longer had the same problem with idolatry as they had before. They certainly had other sins and failings, but seemed to be cured of their outward idolatry after pagan gods. So, as God predicted, I'm going to deal with your tendency for idol worship. I'm going to take you to the land where they're crazy with idols. There's more idols there than anywhere else. And you can worship idols to your heart consent. And it's like going and working in a chocolate factory. After a couple of months, you won't want to eat any more chocolate. So they said, we've had enough. We've learned a lesson. We don't have any more idols. So verse 31. So shall I be inquired of you, O house of Israel. And so we've come back full circle, right back to the start of the chapter where the elders came to Ezekiel seeking a word from God. And the important principle here is that we will not receive any further revelation until we have already obeyed what God has already shown us. It's not complicated. God gives us one command at a time, one thing to change or fix at a time. And we need to be faithful and we need to be patient, both with ourselves and with others. This change doesn't happen overnight. but it will happen in a true believer because God is the one working in us to change us. Now verse 32 is interesting. What you have in your mind shall never be when you say, we will be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries serving wood and stone. So this shows the depth and the source or the root of their sin. What is it? It's the desire to be like the world. That's our human nature. Our human nature wants to be like the world. It's evil. It's hard to imagine the people of God, the Israelites, thinking this after all they'd been through and all that God has done for them, but they did. And so do we if we allow ourselves to be ruled or dominated by our sinful nature. Why? Well, our sinful nature naturally loves the things of the world and hates the things of God. And this is another example of our moral bankruptcy. It's an illustration of the truth in Romans 7.18, which says, where Paul says, And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. So the next time you hear that little voice inside your head say, You know, I'm not such a bad person after all. Well, tell it, yes, you are. (laughs) Put your sinful nature in its place and don't let your wicked and deceitful heart, your sinful nature, deceive you. So we desperately need God to transform us into his image by first of all changing the way we think. So this in verse 32, what you have in your mind should never be when you say we will be like the Gentiles. That's the way they were thinking. That's the way their sinful nature is programmed to think. But we have a new man. We have a new heart with new desires. And so we need to change the way we think by submitting to the Spirit and thinking according to the new man and not the old man. Romans 12.2 Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. What were the Israelites trying to do? copy the behavior and customs of the world, right? But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So instead of wanting to be like the world, what's the new way of thinking? I want to be like God. I want to grow into the image of Christ. So we come to an application which continues on from last week. It's Egypt the wilderness, and the promised land. So last week we were learning about God bringing the Israelites out of the land of Egypt 
into the wilderness, and then finally into the promised land. And so these three places, the land of Egypt, where they're in bondage, the wilderness as like a boot camp or training area, and then the promised land where we exercise our faith, are pictures or types that we can apply to our own spiritual journey. So let's look at the Israelites in bondage to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. So who's Pharaoh a picture of, a type of? Satan, yep. And the land of Egypt is a picture of the world system, the evil world system that we are all born in bondage to. We are slaves to sin, and Satan is our enemy. That's the picture here, applying it to us. And salvation, the exodus, or escape from Egypt, is pictured by, firstly, the forgiveness of sins, and that's represented by the shed blood of the Passover lamb, which was applied to the doorpost. And Jesus says in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Remember, the Israelites had to apply the blood. And so we also need to apply by faith and repentance the blood to ourselves as well, if we're going to receive that forgiveness. And also, another picture from the Exodus is our baptism or incorporation into the body of Christ. I'm not talking about water baptism here. I'm talking about becoming a part of or being immersed in the body of Christ. We are in Christ. And that was represented by the crossing of the Red Sea in the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. So we have the same Holy Spirit living in us. And Romans 6.3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's important. We'll come back to that later. Now, the wilderness wandering. They came out of Egypt and went into the wilderness. It's a time of preparation or training where by growing in our understanding of God's word, we learn to walk by faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 And that's the opposite of walking by sight, emotions, feeling or circumstances. So, what do we learn in the wilderness? Well, in the wilderness we learn to trust God to firstly, fight spiritual battles and overcome the enemy. An example, Deuteronomy 1.29-30 Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So, to go into the promised land, you need to learn this to be true. You need to put your faith in God that he is able to do this for you. The second thing there that we learn to trust God to do for us is to provide for us and protect us in any circumstance. And we see the Father heart of God in Deuteronomy 1, verse 31. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way you went until you came to this place. So God will never leave us or forsake us. He'll always look after us, providing all our needs. Another thing we learn in the wilderness is to overcome habitual sin. It says in 1 John 2.14, the second part, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. And we can relate this back to our passage in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 7. Then I said to them, Each of you throw away the abominations, the vile images, which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's God's desire for us to overcome sin. We won't be perfect, but we can overcome habitual sin. And the last one that we learn in the promised land by faith to trust God for is to be content. We seek God's will and don't worry about pleasing ourselves. So before I read this verse from Matthew 6, what were the children of Israel always worried about? What are we going to eat? 
you know. I want the melons, I want the leeks, you know. They're always worried about themselves and worrying what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat, all these things, right? That's because they weren't living by faith. They were living by sight and looking for temporary satisfaction. I read Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, as you need it, right? So, now we go to the promised land, the land of Canaan. So, entering the promised land, that is, crossing the Jordan River, it requires more faith than initial salvation, which is represented by crossing the Red Sea. And so that's why the wilderness experience is required to prepare us for entry into the promised land. And so, little quote, learning the lessons in the wilderness is a prerequisite for entering the promised land. You know what a prerequisite is? If you don't have that prerequisite, then you can't go to the next part. You can't do that next course, you know if you're talking about school. So, consider these two events, the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan. We'll compare them. When God brought them out of Egypt and he asked them to cross the Red Sea, what did he do first? He made the path, dry path through the water, and then asked them to cross. It didn't require much faith. They were literally walking by sight. I can see how God will deliver me, so I'll trust him. The path was already there. God had made it. They could see it. And God said, walk in it. And, oh, okay, we can do that. Not much faith. So it doesn't take much faith to be a Christian. Just a little bit. Just to trust that God died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins. And if you repent and put your trust in him, you can be saved. However, when it came to entering the promised land, the Israelites had to cross the overflowing Jordan River. You know, a raging river. It's in flood season, lots and lots of rain. So God told Joshua that the river would stop flowing only when the feet of the priests carrying the ark stepped into the raging river. And you can read that in Joshua 3, verses 12 to 17. So this would have required much greater faith. This is not walking by sight. This is walking by faith. I can't see or I don't understand how God will deliver me, but I'll trust and obey him anyway. So a little quote to help us understand this bit. The difference is, I won't be afraid to get my feet wet if I trust that God won't let me drown. Does that make sense? I'm willing to take a risk. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to give. I'm willing to whatever it might be. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I trust that God won't let me drown, so to speak. So what's life in the promised land characterized by? Well, it's living by faith. Walking by faith. After the Israelites crossed over the Jordan, guess what? There's no more manna. There's no more quail. There's no more water from the rock. You can see Joshua 5.12. They no longer knew how God would provide their needs, only that he would. They didn't know where the next meal was coming from. In the wilderness, every morning they'd go out and gather the manna. A little bit of faith to trust that God would have that there waiting for them. But once they crossed over, they had to eat the produce of the land. Remember, there's a couple of million people. A lot of people to feed that God fed them using natural means, yeah? He didn't use the miracles anymore. He used natural means. And so they didn't know how God would provide their needs, but they knew and believed that he would. And this is what it means to do by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7 And Galatians 2.20 really helps us here. I have been crucified with Christ. In him I have shared his crucifixion. It is no longer I who live, but Christ the Messiah lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, 
I live by faith in, by adherence to, and reliance on, and complete trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's from the Amplified Version. So there's four main truths I want to pull out of Galatians 2.20. Firstly, how am I freed from the power of sin? The picture of slavery in Egypt. So salvation must happen first. I must exit Egypt, the house of bondage, before I can enter the promised land, that is, by the wilderness. So sin's power over me was broken when Jesus won the victory over Satan and paid the penalty for my sins when he died on the cross in my place. As it says in Galatians 2.20, My old life has been crucified with Christ. In him I have shared his crucifixion. So that's salvation. My old life is dead. I've been raised to life to live for him. Secondly, where does the power to obey God come from? Well, it's not about me. It's by God living his life through me. As Galatians 2.20 says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ the Messiah lives in me. It's not by my strength, it's by his strength. Now, the third point that Galatians 2.20 makes is that it tells us how to experience his power. By living by faith. And what does that mean? You are trusting and relying in God and not yourself. It says in Galatians 2.20, And the life I now live in the body, that is my physical body, I live by faith in, by adherence to, and in reliance on, and complete trust in the Son of God. Now, if I think I can do something myself, am I going to ask God to help me? There's no point, is there? If you can do it yourself, why would you ask God for help? So, that's the point. We're not going to experience God's power if we don't think we need it. So, practically, this means coming to the simple but humbling realization that I can't, but God can. And 2 Corinthians 3.5 says this, Paul says this, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency, our power, strength and ability is from God. So we have to realize that we can't do anything of lasting eternal value without Christ doing it through us. Fourthly, and this is really important, what is my motivation for living for Christ? So Galatians 2.20 is like a powerful verse. Well, it's love and a thankful heart. Because it was Jesus, as Galatians 2.20 says, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So that's my motivation for being willing to give up the things of the world. Now, what else is the promised land characterized by? Well, we said walking by faith, and we talked about that. Now, I'm going to talk about surrender of my will to God's will, and this is death to self. In Luke 9.23 it says, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And it says in Hebrews 11.26, It was by faith Moses thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to his great reward. Interesting, isn't it? It was by faith Moses thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, the things of the world, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. So, why does surrendering my life to God take faith? Well, I must believe that what is coming in the next life is better than what I can experience down here. If I truly believe that God has something better waiting for me in heaven, and for eternity, my great reward which I get to enjoy for eternity, then I'll be willing to give up the temporary pleasures of sin that I could be enjoying down here, like you know, TV and movies, worldly entertainment, drugs, alcohol, gaming, lust, greed, pleasure, fame, riches, and a pain-free and easy life. Here's a take-home statement. When I refuse to forsake the world, I am demonstrating that I do not really believe God's promises. And again, the example of the Israelites, the first generation out of Egypt, and they didn't believe. 
they wanted everything for themselves, they wanted luxury, they wanted to go back to Egypt, enjoy the things of the world again. So in Hebrews 11.26, we see Moses demonstrating his faith in God's promise of a future and eternal great reward by being willing to give up the things of the world. Can you see that? That if we really believe, then we'd be willing to give those things up. So an example of one of these promises talking about our coming reward and it being much better than what we have now is 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18 from the New Living Translation. It says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory or reward that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. So again, if I'm not willing to forsake the world, it means that I'm not really trusting in God's promise that there's something better for me in eternity, when I get to heaven. I can enjoy stuff here and now and lose my reward, or I can forsake the worldly things and receive my reward later. It's delayed gratification. It's a measure of our faith. So it's a good measure of our faith. What am I willing to give up? That's a good measure of my faith. Now, the next aspect that characterizes living in the promised land is spiritual warfare. So we know that we're described as soldiers in God's army fighting spiritual battles. Well, in contrast, the Israelites were God's army fighting physical battles as a picture or type of spiritual warfare. And so that's why we can learn from them. They're a nation fighting physical battles, but we can learn from their experiences. Joshua 1, 2 and 3 says, Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I said to Moses. So, victory. They will experience victory through Joshua. Who's Joshua a picture of? (laughs) Jesus, yeah. So, what was God preparing the Israelites for in the wilderness? War. Spiritual warfare, yeah? For us, for them it was practical, it was physical. So when we have come to that place of surrender and dependence on God, he then sends us into the promised land so we can fight in the battle proper. But only once we are ready to engage our spiritual enemy using spiritual weapons. That's why we have to come to this place where we realize that we can't do it in our own strength. Otherwise, We'll get into the promised land and try and do it in our own strength and we will fail miserably as Christians. We'll try and fight this spiritual battle using human resources. And Ephesians 6, 10-13 gives us some good advice here. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not ours, but his. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all Strategies of the devil. Again, this spiritual battle. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. So, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We are fighting against demonic powers. So another point here is who and what are we fighting for? Well, the kingdom of God and our king, Jesus. And it says in Joshua 5, 13-15, Jesus is described as the commander of the army of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. So there's a lot at stake in this battle for us. We are ambassadors for Christ and God uses us to reveal light, truth, and freedom to people, while Satan wants to keep them blind, in captive to sin, in bondage to sin, and condemned 
to eternity in hell. So this battle is over the eternal souls of men, as well as for the growing and maturing of the church, the very precious body of Christ. So what we do and how we grow as Christians affects each other, and it also affects those outside the church as well. Now, why does the battle go on for all our lives? Why can't we just get victory and say, good, it's all finished? Well, there's two main reasons. If you go back to Joshua 7, the Israelites fought against Ai. And they did it on their own strength, and there was also sin in the camp. And what happened? (laughs) They were defeated, right? And it wasn't until they repented of the sins of idolatry and self-sufficiency that they experienced victory. And, secondly, yes, some battles were over and done pretty quick, like Jericho was done in a week. Some battles will rage our whole lives, and God gives us an answer to this. It's in Judges 2, 21-23. It says this, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord, to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord has left those nations without driving them out immediately. Nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Interesting. So God left physical nations in the land of Canaan that he didn't allow Joshua to drive out. And he left them there to test the people. Are they going to continue to trust in his power and his strength to continue fighting against those enemies and overcoming them? Or are they going to become like them? So, God is telling us that we need continuing trials so that we will continue to depend on God. Because what would happen if God gave us complete victory over every sin in our lives? What would we start saying about ourselves? I'm pretty good. Look what I did. I'm amazing. I overcame that problem. I overcame this. And look at me now. No. It's not true. But that's what our sinful nature loves to do. It loves to take credit for God's accomplishments. And therefore, God allows difficult circumstances, a worldly thing to remain, you know, temptation, whatever it might be, In these cases, we must rely daily on God's strength. So, every day is a test. Will I continue to love God and therefore obey Him regardless of the consequences, or will I seek temporary pleasure and also try to escape the difficult circumstances so I can live an easy and pain-free life? That's what the sinful nature wants, right? So, Paul wrote some pretty strong words. He said in... 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But Jesus said to me, My grace, my favor and loving kindness and mercy, is enough for you. It's sufficient against any danger and enables you to bear the trouble manfully. For my strength and power are made perfect, fulfilled and completed, and show themselves most effective in your weakness. Therefore, I will all the more gladly glory in my weaknesses and infirmities, that the strength and power of Christ the Messiah may rest, yes, may pitch a tent over and dwell upon me. So for the sake of Christ, I am well pleased and take pleasure in infirmities, insults, hardships, persecutions, perplexities and distresses. For when I am weak in human strength, then I am truly strong, able, powerful in divine strength. So that's what Paul said. He is happy to endure the continuing trials. Why? Because God will use them to make him strong, but not in his own strength, in God's strength. As it says there, For when I am weak in human strength, then I am truly strong, able or powerful in divine strength. So, I just want to finish off talking about the illegitimate wilderness experience. So last week we talked about the legitimate wilderness experience and the illegitimate wilderness experience. 
every believer starts off as a baby Christian. We all go into the wilderness. We all have to learn to live by faith. We all must go through the Living by Faith boot camp for new believers. So I thought of this example. It's like completing a driver training course. You're driving a car, but you're not on the roads, right? And the good thing is, if you turn the wheel too fast or your top's too quick or you spin out of control, you're not going to hurt yourself. It's safe. And you're not going to hurt others. But what are you going to do? You're going to stay there forever, going round and round the circuit? <laughs> it's pretty boring, right? Your purpose in going to the driver training school is to learn to drive so you can get out of there and start driving on the main roads so you can actually go to places and go and do something useful. But you can't do that until you graduate. So last week we finished by going through a list of symptoms or signs of being a baby or carnal or immature Christian. Someone who has not yet graduated from God's Living by Faith boot camp, the wilderness, right? So I want to have a look at two scriptures which show us why many believers are still doing laps in the driver training circuit, right? So 1 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food. Does that give you a hint? Because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with one another. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? He's talking to Christians. Now, what's the milk and what's the meat? What's the solid food? He's talking about the Word of God, right? They have to have the basics. And Hebrews 5, 12-14, You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and does not know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So if we're not on solid food, we're going to be immature and we're going to be living like the people of the world. We're still in the wilderness. So, what's one of the main things which stops people from growing up and learning to trust God to enter the promised land and walk by faith where we don't know how God is going to provide for us, but we know that he will? Well, it's a lack of understanding of the word of God. You can't be a mature believer if you don't read the word of God. It's as simple as that. And You can listen to other people's teaching, that's fine, and you should, but that's not taking the place, it won't take the place of reading the Bible for yourself. And something I learned a while ago is that my growth as a believer is limited by two things. Firstly is my understanding of the Word of God, like what it says, what it means. And secondly, my obedience and application of it. So I can know more than anyone else in the whole world about God and about what the Bible says and about its history and about all those things and theology. But if I don't apply it and if I don't obey it, it does me no good. So people look at people who are really skilled in the Word of God but don't do what it says and they say, what's the point? That person's still immature. They're still living like a worldly person. Yeah, but it's because they're not obeying it. So you need to understand it to obey it. True? So if you don't understand it, then you can't obey it. And so you need to do both. A couple of verses, John fourteen twenty six, But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And John seventeen seventeen, Make them holy by your truth. Lead them, teach them your word, which is truth. Now, why are there so many believers who are basically biblically illiterate? Like, a lot of believers, they struggle to even explain the gospel. Well, I believe that one of the biggest reasons is that the church in general is not teaching the word or encouraging people to read it for themselves. And what happens? Well, they get led astray. 
they are deceived by every new doctrine of men. And that was my experience as a new believer. But can I blame the church because they didn't encourage me to read the Bible? No, it's still my choice. I have to take responsibility for my choices. They didn't make it easy for me to do that. And when I went to a different church, it was much easier and I did grow a lot more and got a hunger for the Word of God. But it's still my responsibility. God still prompted me, but I just didn't do it. So, Ephesians 4, it says this, Now these are the gifts God gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son. See how the two work together, the faith and the knowledge? The faith is like the obedience and the knowledge is the understanding of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. So to be mature, we need faith and knowledge. We need obedience and understanding. Measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. So, for me to grow, I must first repent of any sin so that my heart is soft, because sin hardens your heart, right? If I read the Bible with a hard heart, with unconfessed sin, is it going to do me any good? No, because my heart is hard, right? I'm not repentant. I'm not in a place where I can receive what God wants to say to me. It's like the, the elders who were talking to Ezekiel. God says, I'm not talking to you when there's sin in your heart. So I need to first repent. I need to make sure my heart is soft. Then, when I read God's word, when I make the time to meditate what God is saying through his word, I will be able to hear what he's saying and he will speak to me. So my responsibility in my relationship with God is that I need to make my relationship with God the most important part of my life, to make time for him and to make sure that my heart is submitted to him. And then I will grow in faith and I will not stay in the wilderness. So let's pray. Father, thank you for... These verses, these scriptures, Lord, we don't want to stay in the wilderness. We don't want to be going around the driver training track day after day after day, like the Israelites were, wandering around the desert, doing laps in the wilderness. Father, we want to be used by you. We want to be experiencing the joy of seeing you work through us, loving other people, overcoming sin, having victory, Lord. We want to be used by you and bring glory to you. So help us, Father, to submit to you. Help us to repent of anything that we might have in our hearts that shouldn't be there. And help us to make the time to spend in your word. So we just pray these things and pray that you will use us mightily in the promised land. In Jesus' name, amen.